Welcome everyone to this new session of the Women in Technology Spotlight. Today I have with me Jo Shukla. She is a customer success leader. She is the author of Customer Success Mindset, a book she recently released. And she is also a speaker at Women in Tech Conference. She recently spoke at the Women in Tech Global Conference. I'm so happy to have you here, Jo. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's dive right in because, of course, there's so many interesting things in your uh, history. But let me ask you first, uh, what did you speak about at the, uh, at the last conference, the Women in Tech Global Conference? Um, so I spoke about how organizations can go from being customer focused to customer centric and what the difference between the two is and why we need to be customer centric rather than being customer focused. I have an interesting story. I spoke at the conference for a whole 20 minutes on mute. Oh, my God. And nobody said anything. Oh, they did. I did not have multiple screens because one of my screens was broken and I was only looking at my presentation. So fun muck up and I had to re-record and post um, my talk again. Wow, these are the little technical technical things that go wrong at these conferences, right? I, I saw know. one session where they actually couldn't get the presentation working. They had to do the whole thing without their presentation. So this one was totally my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so but that ties in well in what you do. You're a customer success leader. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, so I work in tech. I've worked in tech for the last 10 years um, of my life, which has pretty much been my whole career. Um, I studied tech in college. Um, so yeah, needless to say, I'm obsessed with working in technology. Um, it's a domain I have loved and I've lived the life for so many years and I don't think I want to change that. Um, based in Sydney, Australia, and I live here with my beautiful small family, a son who is three and a half years old, and the loveliest husband in the universe. Um, outside of work, um, I think um, I've written a book, but I wouldn't say that I love to write. It's something that has taken a mental toll on me. Nevertheless, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, I love to read. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I moved to Australia to sit by the beach, drink uh, margaritas and read books, as many books as I can when I can find the time. That is <laughs> Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm a bit jealous sitting by the beach reading. That's one of, that's like the perfect life, I think. Um, but obviously you also do something to earn some money to have the time to sit at the beach and, and uh, read and drink your cocktails. Um, so customer success, you must be quite passionate about that since you also wrote a book about that. Tell us a little bit what a customer success manager does. Yeah, absolutely. I think before I tell you what a customer success manager does, I think it's, I will say that it's one of my favorite bits of working in tech is that you don't just have to code or you just don't have to be hands-on with technology. I think one of the things that I've loved about my job is that, um, and the tech world in general, is that you can do so many things depend and how technical you are depends on how much interest you have in being technical. Um, that's what brought me to customer success. Um, I love to talk, you've probably figured out by now. Um, and I love meeting new people. Um, and I my love for technology exists, but it's not being it's not in being very hands-on with tech. Um, so that's why I chose to work in customer success. It's a domain where you make your customers and your company successful. Um, by understanding why people buy technology, what they want to do with technology and how technology helps them meet their goals. 
So that's what customer success is all about. And that's why, like I said, I've lived and loved the life for so many years and I don't think it's weird, but I'm obsessed with customer success. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think being obsessed with what you do is one of the, um, how can I say, the pillars of being successful, right? Um, I, I also had a talk at the Women in Tech conference, and one of the things I talked about is how to have a successful career in tech. And I think one of the things I mentioned was exactly that. To be uh, good at something, you have to be passionate about it, and you're obviously passionate about uh, customer success. And you, you said a couple of things I want you to, to uh, circle back to, and I think it's so important to understand for women that when you work in the tech field, you don't necessarily have to be the one doing the coding. And I think a lot of women are also good at what you mentioned, like talking to people, uh, making, uh, forming relationships and these things. Um, did you always know that there were jobs like that in the tech space? Because you said you were, uh, you studied something with tech at college. Uh, maybe you could tell us what that was, but um, did you have an, a vision what you wanted to do when you were done? Well, look, I'm not going to lie. The answer is no. I don't think I had it all figured out on day one. Um, I honestly, growing up, um, I didn't know that I loved technology, to be honest. my I come from a family of lawyers. My father, my uncle, everyone in my family, even my brothers and sisters have grown up to be lawyers. I am the only dark horse in the family who's grown up to be an engineer and working in tech. And I still have a hard time explaining what I do for a job to my parents. Um, but um, my father was the one who nudged me to try something different. That's how I got my education in tech. But once I got a job, for me, I was always, get, even, even when I was getting my degree, I was someone who just did not like to code. I did not have the mind for it. So I fared well in subjects that were comms related or required me to understand the functional aspects of tech. Um, but I was never good at coding. I just, it was something that never came to me, no matter how hard I tried. I just, I, I'm going to admit it, I, I suck at writing code. Um, <laughs> as I got a job, I was really scared because I didn't know how I'm going to do and what they're going, what work they're going to give me. And I almost felt like I'm going to fail. <clears throat> and then I, um, when I got my first job, I just started having open and honest conversations. Luckily, I got to be part of a company where I was given the option to choose my stream. Um, and I chose a techno-functional delivery and implementation oriented um, role that required me to be a bit hands-on, but then also required me to learn and grow the business aspects of it. And I think I just, I deliberately decided to grow my career in a certain way. And that I, I didn't know that that would happen from day one. So day one, I was scared. Um, year one, I was not so scared. Year two and three, I was confident that I will carve a path to myself. And look, I'm still carving that path. No one has ever done when you work in tech because it changes every day. Um, and the last thing you want to do is be complacent and not learn and grow. So I think I do that every day. I just do it in a field that I love. Yes, so true. Um, you can never be complacent. You always have to learn new things. Technology changes all the time, right? I mean, it's not something that you learn and then you're there and that's what you do. And I think there are very few jobs nowadays that are like that. You know, you learn something and then it's it, it doesn't even matter what it is that you started. But um, let's, let's uh, go back to your family. It's so interesting that you come from a family of lawyers because it means you didn't have any role models in terms of, of you know, someone working in technology and, and you know, giving you an idea 
what was possible. Um, but you said your father nudged you to try something different. So tell me, I, I'm trying to grasp where that where that this happened, this shift into technology and how you found out about it. Um, so I, I obviously found out through my father and I think my, my father is my role model, even though he doesn't work in tech. Mm -hmm. I have seen him um, work really, really hard and bring my family to where, where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, and I have seen, I, I think I have learned, I may not have learned tech from him, but I have learned the art of persistence and going for what you want from my father. He's always encouraged me. And um, he found out from a friend of a friend whose daughter was pursuing tech um, and he goes, oh, my daughter's really smart. She needs to do that. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's just, I think everything I am is because um, he's had faith in me and he's encouraged me. So even though I didn't have role models in the start of my career, I had no one to look up to. I think um, I get the, the go-getter factor from my father. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good point. I think uh, we don't necessarily have to have role models in terms of, uh, you know, the field, but um, having good role models in terms of how you can achieve things, what it takes to achieve things is also really, really helpful. So tell me a little bit when you went to college, what was that like? I mean, you're a woman, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but uh, in Europe, there's much more men than women in the field. So what was it like for you? So fun fact, I went to university back in India. Um, oh, you did. Okay. I did. I did my degree there. Um, and I think that in college, uh, I wouldn't say it was a 50-50 split of students, but there was a fair bit of girls studying tech. Okay. Um, that landscape has changed. India has picked up um, and um, more and more women are studying tech back home. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, so I, I don't think that I saw that um, what we'd call discrimination or we'd call um, underrepresentation of women in tech when I was in college. But that, I mean, I probably didn't even think about it, but I think that changed completely when I got a job. Because mm -hmm. okay. always at the table. Um, and I think as a young woman who grew very quickly um, into management roles, I found that my voice was not heard enough because I was in a room full of men. And they'd go, oh, she's still young, she's still inexperienced. Um, and, you know, my opinion would not be dismissed directly, but it would just be unheard. And I, for a, for a period of time, I learned to not voice my opinion. And um, then I was told how wrong that is, and I should not be doing that. And that was another woman telling me that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so all of this happened, I got leadership roles really early, and then my life brought me to Australia. Australia is a beautiful country, but it's very harsh to people who don't have local experience. And that is the same case for men and women. Mm -hmm. So I came from a director level role back home, but I had to start again as an individual contributor. Um, it's harder as an immigrant, even if you speak the language and you've got global exposure, global experience, it's very hard to grow. So I think for the last five years that I've lived in Australia, moving up in my career has meant moving back to where I used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, do I regret my decision? No. Um, I have learned a lot of things. I've met, met great people along the way, but I've also learned the fact that growth is not always vertical. Growth can also be horizontal. You can work for a title, you can work for a position, but the work that you do matters in the end and how you represent yourself mm -hmm. in the work that you do is really, really important. 
Um, but I think I've seen a lot of bias in the last four years of my career as well, um, because people have told me that, you know, oh, what do you know, you're an individual contributor, not knowing that I had the same job as them mm -hmm. um, in my, what I call my previous life now. So I think there's a lot of, uh, we've come, um, and it's surprising that we're talking about this in 2022, but I think we are now living in a world that where bias and discrimination is not very direct because people are more educated about not doing that. But it's indirect in a way that one, it's it could be hard to decipher for someone who's new to the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it discourages you in a certain way that it messes up with your mental health and your opinionated, um, your, the way you present your opinions in the long run. Yes, that's such an important discussion, really, Joe, because um, biases, yeah, because as a woman and as a woman of color, basically, um, you run into both biases, you know, the bias against women and the bias against uh, women of color or women of other races or other or immigrant women. So that's a hard battle, actually. And it's, as you said, it's, it has become a very subtle battle, actually. It's not like it used to be where people were just plain dismissive, you know, it's, it's so much harder because it feels like gaslighting. So this is, this is a really, really, really tough thing to overcome. And I would like to understand how, how you dealt with, for example, the feeling of being muted, you know, of not being listened to. And, and how did you overcome that? You said there was a woman who said you should raise your voice, but, but what did it take internally to actually do that? I think for a period of time, I didn't even realize it was happening to me. And that's how, that's how, when I realized, I've also realized how dangerous that is because mm -hmm. it does something to you mentally where if someone talks over you or dismisses your point in a way that's not disrespectful, it takes, it takes a lot of realization and it takes a lot of time sometimes for someone who's relatively new in their career to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and this happened to me and one of my colleagues, she said, oh, you, but you made a really good point. You should have said it. And it would have change the direction of the conversation in a very positive way. And when I sat down and I reflected, the first thing I said to myself was, I'm not going to let that happen to myself again. And that is not to be dismissive or disrespectful of anyone else's point in the room, but making sure that my point is not only well made, but also well heard. Mm -hmm. um, so I started talking at the right time. And if someone tried to talk over me, I'd ask them to excuse me and let me finish what I was saying. So I think I just, you don't have to be the loudest voice in the room or the smartest person in the room. You just have to know when and how to make your point because your point is important and mm -hmm. it may not be important. You just have to say it. I think learning not to say what you want to say is the worst thing you can do to yeah. yourself. I agree. And this is such a good point, you know, knowing that your voice just counts as much as everyone else's. And that, that can be hard for, for young women, especially because you also said you were the youngest usually in the room and we have, we've all been there. So, those, so this is something that you actually have to learn and that you have to be a little bit prepared for, I guess. So coming back to your move to Australia and having go, to go back to role as an individual contributor, that also shows some, some very uh, internal strength that you have, you know, because for, I think for a lot of people, it would be really the worst thing, you know, going back from, from uh, managing to, to being just a contributor, it would mess with their self-esteem. So seeing you do that and being successful and rising again, is is, is very inspiring. Um, 
tell me a little bit about why you moved to Australia and, and how you approached this, this whole journey. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very interesting, I like to think it's a very interesting story. Um, so three years into my role um, at the startup that I was working at before I came to Australia, um, I was asked to move to New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't do that because I have a husband and he would need a work visa. And, you know, visas sometimes work very differently where partners can't work when you have a certain visa status um, in the States. At a similar sort of time, my husband was asked to move to London because he was working for a UK-based firm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to move to London. I wanted to move to a beachy country. So I think we had established that in order to grow, we needed to move on from our roles and do something else. But it couldn't have been the two options that were presented to us. So we didn't make a rash decision. Uh, we researched what we could do, where we could go. And uh, we, we heard from friends that Australia is a land of opportunities and with the right experience, you can apply for a permanent residence visa. It was scary because the process is long and hard and it takes several months. And um, well, obviously we didn't know the point about local experience. Um, not that it would have made my decision any different. I think I still would have moved for the life um, that this country offers. Um, but yeah, we, we, we navigated through it. We looked at our visa options. We understood that there is a chance for us to get permanent residence and we did. So we moved in a way that we thought it's going to be permanent. We were taking the risk at the right time in our lives where we didn't have children um, and we could do this. We could restart. So we basically moved our whole life. But I, I like to think that it's a calculated risk that mm -hmm. we took because we knew that we're not going for a study option or something like that. That would be a higher risk option. We were going in a permanent residence option where we could, we could just go and get on with our lives and start a job. That did turn out that did not turn out to be, to be the way we had imagined it, but it turned out to be something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, moving to a different country is always an adventure. And obviously, you're you're really doing great because um, you are, again, in custom success. And tell me a little bit about that book. What made you write a book about it? I, I wish I had an interesting story. Honestly, it's nothing. It's <laughs> husband nudging me and prodding me um so what happened was when I moved to Australia and I had to start in this IC role um obviously like you said um it does mess with you mentally because you were thinking that you're not enough or you're worthless or your career is set to be doomed um I had all of those dark thoughts yet I'd get on with my day do my job and, and the funny thing is that you can't keep saying to people at your job that oh you know I used to be this because it doesn't matter it matters where you are today and i and it's very important to be humble and live in the moment and do the best, make the best of what you've got. Um, so with all of those several things going on in my mind and me switching roles to try and move back up in my career, I also did a lot of mentoring on the side. So I found mentors and mentees, and that was a greatly enriching experience for me. Um, it allowed me to stay in touch with my leadership skills, and it really helped me a lot. I think just finding friends and finding confidants people who have had similar experiences, women trying to climb back up or get back into the workforce. I think it was a really enriching experience. What that brought about was also opportunities to talk at conferences, have one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I was always saying these things and these are not my words, my husband's words. People are always stealing your slides. Don't just say stuff, write it down. <laughs> um, so I decided to write a book last year and um, I went completely crazy writing it. I've lost half of the hair in my head, um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's the 
it's a sense of achievement that I cannot explain, not because I've got a finished book in my hand, mm -hmm. but because it's made me realize how important my journey has been. Wow, that's you say that's not an interesting story. It's an absolutely interesting story because that's there's what so I'm telling a wife to do something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I heard is again, you know, this power of networks, you know, of having a network, of building a network, how important that is on the one hand to feel at home and to feel connected and also to, to pick up new skills, to hone your skills. I mean, you said you were mentoring and, and it helped you stay in touch with your leadership skills. And that's absolutely true. It's not just within the workplace where we can find meaning, having a good network where we can actually contribute is, is so important as well, right? That's true. That's true. I think last year I made a resolution and I said to one of my mentors that next year I'm not going to be defined by my job. Mm -hmm. um, and the book has helped me do that. That's amazing. So absolutely an interesting story. Never say that it's not an interesting story. And kudos mm -hmm. to your husband for, for actually supporting you and encouraging you to, to go and write that book. And um, I feel that throughout your journey, you, you really learned a lot about yourself and, and about the field and about how to approach life. And I mean, of course, it's not over, but you will definitely learn more stuff. But um, I think there's so much wisdom in there. Um, when, I, when you think about the things you learned, what is it you would tell young women who are, you know, at a similar point in life, but starting out, um, what would you tell them? What to, should they do to succeed? What what did you learn on how to succeed? Um, I think that my biggest learning has been one that the only way to go is to go forward. I've had a lot of, lot of ups and downs in my journey. Um, and it's, yeah, I think that looking back and reflecting is very important, but looking back and regretting is the worst thing that you can do. Mm -hmm. So the only way to go is to go forward. And anyone who's starting out know that, you're, you're not going to figure out where you're going to be on day one. Mm -hmm. It takes months and years and, you know, to figure yourself out and you understand. Like you said, I understood myself um, when I took this journey and I'm a very different person than I used to be. I like to think that I'm not stupid anymore. <laughs> um, but it gives you, a, a life gives you a lot of learnings. And I think, uh, don't regret your decisions. I think women have such high... Um, emotional intelligence they are way smarter than men and I love all the men in my life but I think women just have such a high emotional quotient um, and our instincts about ourselves and what we want to do is are all almost always right you will find a lot of people who will help you and you will meet a lot of gems along the way and you want to take along them they'll le the learnings that you get from them along on your journey but remember that it's your journey don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything Oh, that's very profound. Thank you. Especially that moving forward, making sure that looking back, you don't look back at regrets and, you know, not letting others define you. Thank you so much for your uh, wise words here. And thank you for coming on, on this podcast and, and talking to us and sharing your amazing journey. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I, I have listened to other episodes of your podcast and to be included in a conversation with someone as amazing as yourself and the kind of people you invite is no less than an honor. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. 